everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome everyone to this special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is our post-major traditional conversation with Hall of Fame tennis journalist Steve Flint. I look forward to these every time we hit a major, every time a major comes to its conclusion. I know that this is on the horizon, um, and it's always so much fun. So we get to everything 2020 U.S. Open. From the final between team and Zverev, still so much to talk about from that insane final. Of course, uh, the Djokovic incident was one of the major storylines. Nadal, the the absence of Nadal, the, the fact that there was no crowd, so much to get to. It's all in here. We got to a ton of topics. Uh, so without further ado, Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis journalist and author Steve Flink. His latest book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. Uh, but of course, it is tradition on the channel to catch up with Steve after every major tournament. So it is, of course, on the heels of the 2020 U.S. Open. Uh, we meet again. Steve, it's great to see you. Good to see you too, Gil. Looking forward to this. It was a it was a, it, a bizarre open in many ways, but I'm 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 pleased that we just got through it. To tell you the truth, I wasn't that optimistic up front about the potential for illnesses and people catching the virus and real troubles. But they, I I commend the USTA. They did a phenomenal job. Yeah, you almost feel like it's it was a major success considering there there weren't a lot of issues outside of Benoit Pair and. A couple of right. other things so that was great I, for that reason because it was such a strange tournament I want to start by just asking you a very intentionally vague question how did you feel taking this in strange very strange because when I hadn't missed I met, last missed the U.S. Open in person in 1970 when I was in college I had to go back over to England and it's a long story but I, I meant that I had to be over there prior to the tournament. And the only way I found out about it was through Lance Tingue of the Daily Telegraph. Went out to dinner with him about a week after the Open and he, he regaled me with all the stories. But that's the last time I missed the Open. So to be sitting at home, Gil, when I'm used to making this daily drive from Westchester County, about a one hour drive out to the US Open to the Hall of Science and back after the night session or would vary day to day, but out there most of the time with the exception of a 
some night matches here and there that I watched at home in order to make sure I got some sleep. To suddenly not be on the ground for two weeks. And also to look into the stands, to see the commentators doing a, a remarkable job. And they, they, they uh, made the adjustment quickly. To see the players make uh, adjust so beautifully to the conditions. But looking at those largely empty stands, it, it, it just it, it, it was a little bit jarring at times to think, oh, my God how can this be? But I also was grateful that we had an open at all. Yeah. The, the feel was, was very different without the crowd. There was still tension, but it was just a different kind of tension. There was almost nothing to cut the tension. Maybe there was more tension because there wasn't a crowd. How do you think that affected the players overall? It was hard to tell. I didn't sense that it was really detrimental to anyone, Gil. You would have thought for any of the top players, it was, it was such, a, uh, such a difficult experience to not hear the applause. The lesser players, not so much. But I, didn't, I felt they did, the, the, the transition they made was, was astounding at times. And that the level of tennis, considering that basically the game had been on hold for five or six months with the exception of some exhibition events, was was really first rate across the board for the men and the women. I agree with you. Now, let's get to this men's final. Nerves really got in the way of the quality of tennis. Have have you ever seen such a a nerve-riddled match? No. No, I would say not. I in in fairness, I think there were some physical issues too when it came yeah. to team. He wouldn't use that. I've heard his comments since and he said no, he he did attribute it more to nerves, but I do think he was a little, he plays such a taxing style of tennis. And I think that even though he beat Medvedev in straight, for instance, it was such hard work coming back in the second and third sets from a breakdown and Medvedev serving for both sets. And I, I feel like he, he, he was a little bit worn out physically as well, but no, on both sides of the net. I mean, let, let's start with Zarev. I mean, for all the people are talking, Gil, I'm fascinated to get your opinion on this too. But I really felt that for it up to a set in 5-1, Zarev was a revelation. It's the way I wanted to see him play consistently when, that we've seen so rarely, except in some Masters 1000s and, and the year-end championships that he won the ATP year-end in London a couple of years ago when he beat Federer and Djokovic back-to-back. But we just haven't seen that freewheeling confidence style of aggression, controlled aggression, coming in at the right times, mixing up the surf. Everything he did was spot on. And obviously, team wasn't up to it, wasn't answering it. That's when the first case of nerves came in, Gil. Would you agree? Five, one, second set. I don't know why he yeah. would tighten up there. He's, he's two breaks up, going for a third break. And that's when he started to go wrong. That's when he suddenly got conscious of where he was. I, he played his worst service game of the entire match at 5-2. And then team yeah, had probably yeah. his easiest hold at three five. Now right, he was right. he was clutch in the five four game in the second set from thirty all. He he won the next two points um, right, in right. rather impressively. But I agree with you. As soon as there was a point in the match where the mindset certainly shifted, and he realized, oh, now I'm supposed to win this match. Where I I exactly. think he I think he went into the match saying, okay, I've, I've made it so far, I've got nothing to lose, I'm playing with house money. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Because he also knew that inevitably all of us and fellow players and just about anyone on the tennis scene was going to sell him short, given that 
he'd had to come back from two sets down in a pretty mediocre performance against Karina Busta. He'd been in real trouble against Borna Krorich, a set in four, two down, and he came out of that in four. He really hadn't played that well the whole tournament. So there was all of that, and that was the fact that it was his first major final. But I just didn't understand the nerves kicking in when they did. I would have understood it better if he'd had only one break in the second, and suddenly at 5-4, he's serving for it and says, oh, my God. But he had such a cushion at 5-1. Had he closed it out there or even at 5-2 in the bad game he played on serve that you alluded to, I think things could have been very different in that third set. And that if he'd gotten the break as he did to go up 2-1, he might have run out the match in straight. I think the nerves come from deep-rooted technical deficiencies. The fact that he, he can't rely on his second serve. The fact that his forehand can go off the rails sometimes. And... And then I would also add that he kind of defaults to a more passive style than we saw him play in in the early stages of this match. So, well, those almost, are all. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Finish your point. Finish your point. Well, well, I I was pretty much done there. I I think that the fact you know yes it's mental, but I also think it has to do with 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 te- the technical side as well. Yeah, I I. Slightly disagree. I, I mean, I agree with you about, here's what I would say. I totally agree with you about the forehand. The forehand can technically go very awry. Although on, in this occasion, for the most part in this match, his forehand was terrific. Percy, yep. especially first two sets, seemed to be able to hit out freely without making hardly any errors off that side. And that really got inside team's head because he felt he had nowhere to go. The two-hander is a, is a really sound shot. As for the second serve, Gil, it's my feeling that that is largely in his head because I feel like why can't he find a middle ground between 87 mile an hour kicker and 135 for an ace down the tee, hoping it goes in. There were times in this final that he did where we saw some 110 or 105 or something that you felt he could control that was also going to do some damage. I feel like the technique is pretty good on the second serve, but he makes some very bad decisions. Uh, what do you think about that? I think uh, I think his toss is too high, um, and I also think that his his shoulder turn is very minimal. Um, so uh, I have one person who I've collaborated with this uh, on is is Jeff Salzenstein, and we've broken down some of those areas. I definitely think it's mental because of sometimes how much he misses by. You'll see him missing in the bottom of the net. You'll see him nearly hitting the baseline. So I do think at the end of the day, it is yips. It is in his head. But I also think in order to get over that, uh, I wonder if he needs to make real technical changes. It's hard. Yeah, that's, 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 that might be another separate half-hour discussion. Yeah. For but, but I would say this. I do believe that throughout the tournament, it was very shaken. There was a long stretch in those first two sets before the, he lost his serve at 5-2 in the second, where I thought, my God, has he ever put it right? Is he ever finding the balance today? And it was a joy to watch it. It was an absolute, you felt badly for a team who couldn't get, really couldn't get himself, his teeth into the match at all. But it was a brilliant performance up till that stage by, by Sasha Zarev, no doubt about that. Absolutely. And, and definitely part of team slow start is because Zverev just gave him no rhythm and no timing with the, with the way he was playing. But you said you were surprised about how the nerves got to Zverev. I was far more surprised about how the nerves got to team in, in the beginning of the match because he played the big points against Medvedev in the semifinal, 
so, so admirably. It, it made me forget that he was 0-3 in major finals and that Novak was out of the picture. Those are all things that would suggest that team might, you know, get really tight. But I forgot about all those things just because of how impressive he was in that semifinal. And then on Sunday, it was different. Yeah, it was very different. You're right. I think that the, the difference from the Medvedev match, Gil, is that he at least had a set in hand when he made those comebacks in the second and third. He had something of a cushion there. He was feeling good about having taken that opening set. And that might have helped him deal with the, art, the difficult circumstances of being down in, this, in the second and third. But here, he felt like he really wanted that first set badly. And, and, it, and, and things started to unravel for him a little mentally. But I agree with you. It's a good point because he had actually been mentally tough the whole tournament. The entire tournament he had been. And, and I think that he'd actually, his form got better and better. Really had me encouraged that he was going to win that match in no more than four sets going in. That's how I felt. So... And in, in the back of his head, he may have felt that way too, although he wasn't saying it. But you're right; he was he was full of apprehension for really for the throughout those first nearly two sets. Yeah, I think he had this expectation on himself um, that that he would win the match. That was probably a little bit too heavy uh, for for his own good. But there's nothing you can do about that. So I I just felt for him, and I think the zero and three. In, in finals played into it as well, but so well-deserved. He has continued to improve his game over the last couple of years, especially, and, and ever since he hooked up with, with Nico Masu, um, I, was, I was definitely happy to see all that work pay off and Dominic team win it. Oh, so was I. But I, I must say, we should probably just reflect a little bit more on the latter stages. Obviously, once team broke back in the yeah, in the third, and then went on to win that, and he he got you. You felt like he was going to win the fourth, and he did, and you could see Sasha sagging a bit. But the fifth was so bewildering to me in so many ways because once again, you figure Gil that when Team gets that break immediately to start the fifth, that he's going to be now now watch out, he's going to be pretty unstoppable. He's come from two sets down and two sets and a breakdown all the way from that deficit to being a break up in the fifth set. From there, I can't even explain it because I thought he got very tight again. If you look at the game he played at one love, it was an awful game on his serve to let yeah. Sasha back. And that was crucial because he had a chance to be serving at two love and eventually three, one, four, two, putting the pressure on. Instead, he was right back in trouble. And, and, uh, it, and, and finally, we see Sasha get that break to, and serves for the match at five, three. And, I suppose that he was truthful later, Gil, when he said that he, too, was cramping. He, it wasn't just team that was cramping, but we didn't see – it wasn't as obvious with Sasha. But he didn't serve very hard in that 5-3 game. That was so strange to see Bingo. him not – he took so much off it that he really uh, – he kind of got in his own way. I don't think it was a terribly difficult break game for team because he didn't have to deal with any – bombs being thrown at him or any you know, lunging returns. He was right in there on every point and he eventually broke him at 30. It was a good effort. And then, and then we go from there to team you know, breaking again and serving for the match. And you see how hobbled he was and the trainer had rubbed his legs and, mm -hmm. and he gets broken. I didn't know what to think. What did you think going into that tie break after both men had served for the match? Who, who was your money on at that stage? My money was on team because I felt like he was still going after the ball. 
um, at least on the forehand side. The backhand, he was he was slicing every backhand. He was, he was. Which, which was not uh, it wasn't working. I think Zverev was was happy with that. Um, but when Zverev's first serve left him, to me that's okay. He is giving up one of his his best and most important weapons and the team weapon, the forehand, which got him out of some some difficult positions in, in the latter stages of the match, Dominic was at least still going for it, even though he was making errors. I agree. I totally agree. Those are great points. I would only add this to, on your comment on the slice back in from team. Mm-hmm. I felt like it, it, the, one of the reasons Sasha was very happy, it was kind of a floating slice. It, wasn't, it yeah. was just to keep the ball in play. There was no bite on it. So for Sasha, he didn't have to bend that low to execute his two-hander, and he could stay on top of the rallies with that. So you're right. He was not disrupted or bothered by it much at all. But uh, then again, then we get this crazy tiebreak because, as you said, team was going for the forehand. He wasn't afraid. So there he is with the two match points, and he misses forehands on both. You know, he pressed a little bit. And, and, and I really thought when they changed ends at six all, boy, I think he's done himself in. And that next point was a beauty, though, because, you know, mm-hmm. Sasha tried to pressure him and hit a couple of volleys, and finally on the third attempt, team managed to pass him and then he got he got the error on the last point but it was it was incredibly suspenseful stuff uh we can talk about the the level of play being very up and down from both but the fans had a treat in the sense of you just really didn't know literally to the last instant uh who was going to win that tennis match the drama was incredible especially with the stakes and the the big three major streak that dated back to 2016 and there hadn't been a new major uh, champion since Chilich won it in 2014. Right. right. Um, before we move on from this final, the, the, the Zverev cramping thing, you okay. know, he, he specified that the, the question in the press conference was about the tie break. So the one thing I'm confused on is, was he cramping throughout this, the entire fifth set or was it just in the tie break? That's the one thing that I'm unclear on and it changes the way yeah. you look at the match. You're right. You're right. My, my guess is it must have been there to some degree. I don't think it was just all out nerves when he served for the match. So I think yeah. it must have been creeping in by then or surely he would have gone for those 135s and tried to get some quick free points and make his task easier. So we're guessing. You're right. He wasn't that clear on it. Uh, so right. we, we will never know. We will never know. But I have to say, Gil, that the sportsmanship of these two guys afterwards was was really such a credit to them both because the teams saluting, both of them saluting each other so genuinely. And, and uh, Zarev, you know, breaking down in tears, but, but still giving team his due. I, I thought it's about as honorable a job as I've ever seen two finalists against each other do after one of these majors and, and, and a heartbreaking setback for Zarev. But did, did he ever handle it with grace? Yeah, the, the whole thing was incredibly human, both during the match and after the match. And I think especially, especially Zverev, I think he probably came out of that match with a lot more fans than, than he had coming in. I thought it was a really good thing for him. And you know what? I also don't think that there's going to be that much scar tissue from this because I think... I'm so his... glad you're saying that. I couldn't yeah. agree more. I couldn't agree more because, look, he... He, he knows he came close. He knows, you know, he's got plenty of time. And I, I, I agree with you. I think there's going to be a good learning curve from this. And I think he'll put it all in perspective and realize that 
Yes, he could have won in straight, and yes, he could have served it out in the fifth, but the fact remains that he, he, you know, he had a great tournament and finally put himself in a position to do it so that next time, the next time around, I think he'll be a lot more comfortable. Plus, he knows how, what team went through with the three final round losses. Leave aside the fact that two were to Rafa and one were to Novak. There's still losses in the finals, and there's still a, a bruising defeats. So he, and he, he knows enough history. I'm sure he's been told about Lendl and, and Murray and both of them losing four finals before they broke through. So he will not despair. I, I see it yeah. exactly the way you do. I think he, he knows that there's so much more. He can get so much better. And, you know, he was so close, but he knows he can be more ready the next time he's there. So, yeah, what I, what I like, Gil, by the way, that we didn't talk about, what I loved about when he mm-hmm. was flowing in the first two sets was the combination of offense and defense. Because he really, that was another way he really thwarted Dominic in that stage was when Dominic did get on top of a rally, uh, Sasha had arms that were extending into the stance. I mean, he was running down everything and willing to win points that way as well as being the aggressor. And I thought the combination was irresistible and impressive and shows how versatile he is in his way. Plus, his backhand volley was golden. When he got up there, that, the low backhand volleys, mm-hmm. I mean, he just, it's very unusual for, for a guy with a two-hander to hit the one-handed backhand volley as well as he did. I think he's worked hard on it because when, when I first watched uh, Zverev play uh, in you know, 2017 and 2018, I considered his volleys very weak. Yeah, I agree. I agree. He's worked hard. He's worked very yeah. hard. So I just do, I do agree. I think you're going to, and then in turn, we should talk about team. I think for him to have the monkey off his back, Huge. that now we, we will see some real progress from him. And inevitably there's going to be at least one French, and I suspect more than that. And I think he's going to do, do well in Australia. The only one I'm not sure about with team is Wimbledon. Uh, that's going to be the, that's always maybe going to be the toughest one for him to win for a variety of reasons. Is but it the return are, though? Is the return the main issue? I think so. I think so. So, I mean, look, look where he was against Zarev on the hard course, but on the grass, I don't think he can get away with it. And uh, that, yes, that seems to be the biggest problem is he, maybe, he, maybe w- with the help of Masu, he can change that. He can learn to start moving in and adjusting. If he does, if he makes that adjustment, I might feel differently, but right now I feel like it's hard courts and clay for him. Clay, obviously he's, it's all, it's just inevitable. And Rafa, one of these years, he, he, he actually will be human again and lose. And it, might be, and it might be the team is the one to hand him that defeat. You never know. I, yeah. I mean, so far, I haven't believed in him against Rafa at Roland Garros in best of five, but I'm not so sure anymore. I think at this, especially in a season like this, by the way, if they met in a few weeks, the team, they're not, the players are not worn out like they usually are. You know, sometimes they've played a long clay court circuit. They played four tournaments heading into Paris. You know, they've been through a lot of wear and tear. A team could play Nadal having not had too many long matches going into that semifinal or final, whatever it is. He just might have a shot. Oh, I, I do hope we get to see that because that would be, that'd be really interesting. What I will say about the, the scheduling, though, is I found it interesting that all four semifinalists at the Western and Southern Open – None of them went past the first week. Now, Novak yeah. is well on his way, and we'll get to yeah. that in a moment. Right, but that's I, a very good point. Yeah, so I think the yeah. schedule is going to be difficult for people, and there might be instances where players go basically play too much tennis because that's just how the schedule is. 
Yeah, I think fortunately they're in Rome right now and the top ones will take next week off, thankfully. Yeah. They really need it, especially those that have been in New York. And obviously team took this week off and Zarev, you know, I think that they'll be okay. But I, it's no doubt it was tricky to have to put Cincinnati right on top of New York. And I think that may have been one of the kind of factors in the Djokovic psyche is that he went, he had not only this whole issue with the new players association, but a lot, some tough matches at the end against Bautista, Goud and Raonic in the Cincinnati event. And then kind of no time to breathe, but he played the Cincinnati final on Saturday, not Friday as it originally would have been played. And then he's right back at it Monday in the first. I never think he, he never got a chance to kind of relax. And that may have been part of the reason why he was a little bit edgy all the way through the tournament, right up until the, the explosive moment against, uh, against Karina Busta. Yeah, that's the, that's the macro view. And then the, the micro is he had just jammed his, his left shoulder, right. which right. really not enough people talked about it. I made sure to, to hammer it home on, on the Monday um, on my show. Not enough people talked about what had just occurred before the incident. Um, you know what, Gil, not just that. You're right. That shoulder was, was important. It was nagging at him. We'll never know how serious it was. But in turn, I think he was also really irked that he would have 5-4, love 40, triple set point, ready to just put the match virtually in his pocket. And he didn't convert those set points. And he had smashed a ball against the side, the lower fence at the side of the court after the third set point eluded him. And I think that really bugged him too. And then you had the shoulder, you know, the combination of the two. You're right. And so he was definitely in, uh, you know, it was bad karma in a lot of ways. Plus, the other strange thing about that incident, Gil, was that as you know, these you watched enough. You watched a lot of tennis. These guys essentially have eyes in the back of their heads. So when Djokovic didn't turn and look in the direction of the linesman, normally he would have had a, had a clear sense as he swatted that ball where it was going, and it would be right in the middle of the fence. I, that part baffled me. I didn't understand what happened. What happened to him there? Because normally he he would know. He wouldn't even have to look. It'd be like, okay, I know, I I, I know where they're sitting, and it right and. It, it would have been no issue, right? Yeah. Uh, now, a couple of things. One, I mean, if he wasn't frustrated, I think he would have just taken the ball out of his pocket and dropped it on the court. Uh, yeah. But I, I think you, you make a great point. If you are going to hit the ball, it is, it's very surprising that, that he wouldn't, you know, basically understand exactly where the lines people are. Yeah. Do, is there any, I think most people are kind of in agreement. There's nothing the umpire or the tournament referee can do there. Um, although it's a, it's a big blow to the tournament. That's the call that has to be made. I think so. You saw that the, the, the Frenchman. Ball off? No, the Frenchman during the Cincinnati event. I never oh, put out. Uh, Bednay. 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 Uh, he hit I don't the know ball against French. the fence. His hit the fence. Yeah, not, he, maybe he's not French, but you know, he smacked that ball against the fence. It bounced up in, into the, into the cameraman above. Yes. And uh, Lars Graf talked to everybody, and there were, and, and that did not amount. That did not turn into a disqualification. Granted, he got a warning. Yeah, got a warning. Far or, viol- or code violation. Yeah, far different yes. incident. Granted, and there was no way that you saw that he didn't hit the guy hard. So I don't think, given that that the ball hit the woman in the throat, there was much they could do. And I think Novak kind of knew it. I do think some of the critics who said that didn't like him trying to bring up a solution to the officials. I think that's being a little hard on him. He just was hoping there was a way they could punish him less severely 
and that the match could continue. But it, under the circumstances, I don't think they, they did have any choice. I'm just saying, Gil, to me, it was a freakish moment. I think if yeah. you put him in that same situation a hundred more times, it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen that way. He might smack a ball, but it would end up in the fence nowhere near. I mean, I know there have been some close calls in the past, but I just don't. I, 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 I felt it was kind of freakish. I agree. And, and I also, you know, when Novak's at the net trying to plead his case, he's a defense attorney. That's really all right. he is. And you right. can't put much weight into what he's trying to say to try to not get kicked out of the no. tournament. But it was sad. The bottom line was sad for the tournament. Uh, you know, yeah. I think he had a clear path. I, I think at the least we would have seen him in the finals. I don't think, I think team would have been the only one that would have had a really serious shot at beating him. That's my feeling. Yeah. I think he was, and he was playing pretty well and, the draw was, was fine. And I don't think there were going to be too many obstacles for him. We'll never know. But I, I do think it was great to see him back on the court uh, in Rome, to see him entering Rome and just getting on with his life. It's the best thing he could do. Let me ask you this. We've seen, we've seen this happen to players in the past. Tim Henman hit the ball kid. Dennis Shapovalov hit the chair umpire. And then Nalbandian didn't um, hit a ball, but he hit kind of a barrier in front of a lines judge. Right. All of these players mean, you know, mean no harm. It's a, it's a complete accident in all of the cases. Do you think that the, the rule itself needs to be revisited? Should there be kind of room for interpretation? Well, I think so. And I think they, I think they might want to, they might want to look at that because then you, you know, things could maybe turn out different. Yeah. I mean, you probably saw there were some things floating around the internet, some stuff of, Federer hitting a, bo a ball boy once in, in, in a match and, and play, almost playful, but he hit the ball behind his back, interestingly enough. That's another case of you, you would have thought that he would have found a way that, you know, it would have landed somewhere else or by the side of the net or wherever it might be. But yes, I think they could look into that. But I guess the bottom line is once, once that woman was hit where she was, as opposed to maybe hit her on the foot, he, he hit the ball and it would have been fine if it, yeah. if it hit her in the foot. Right. Right. Now, now I didn't like that people were comparing um, with the Federer video. I, I saw it as well because that ball is in play. Uh, it had just been called out moments ago. So as a ball person, you know, you're, you're looking to then retrieve the ball. And I think Federer was trying to hit it to the, to the ball person. And yeah, he was, he was, yeah. he was, it's an accident, but I'm just saying that, you got you, you definitely need to interpret the rules which is what yeah. large Trapp was doing and and, then I, and frankly large made the right decision in in his case uh in the cincinnati event but uh, mm -hmm. i i they might want to look at it gil they might and then in turn novak obviously i think for the rest of his career there's good no that you don't that's not it's a harrowing moment you don't forget it and he knows it cost him a potentially his 18th major so he doesn't want to do that to himself again I will add this, Gil. There was sharp criticism for him not doing the press conference. And I'm going to be in a minority on this and say, I think he did the right thing. Because had he, he either was going to sit around the grounds for quite a while and try to get his, try to collect his thoughts and come in. Or he, I just think it was such a shocking moment for anybody of, of his stature to, do, to have that happen, that he was better off to issue a statement later on. Because... He's had to answer more questions about it this week in Rome. I think we needed to hear from him, and he made sure that we did hear from him that night. I don't think it was a terrible transgression because I do believe that it would have been a, a, an almost impossible press conference to conduct. And it was a pretty – it was one of those moments that won't – you know, he'll never – 
experience anything quite like that again. So I'm not going to join the chorus of critics who are coming down on him so hard and saying he should have manned up and been in there. I, th I think under the circumstances, take the fine, but speak to the public and be gracious about it, which he was. Yeah, it, it didn't, that, that wasn't something that, that bothered me to, to my core by, by any means. I think if he, if he were able to, to face the press, if he was in that state of mind, I think it, it would have helped him. It would have been positive, but um, you know, I, as, as you said, it, it would, it would happen soon enough. Um, what do you make of, what do you make of Nadal? In, in hindsight, the tournament has happened. Um, he wasn't there. He was healthy. This is obviously these are unprecedented times, but that's kind of an unprecedented uh, measure. At least now it is in the, in the modern era for someone to skip a slam like that. Well, there were probably a couple of reasons. One was he obviously, from his statement, he obviously didn't feel safe about the travel and coming to New York, which I, I think was totally genuine. The second, his history of hardcore injuries. Now, he got through the tournament two of the last three years, which was terrific, in 17 and 19, but in between the Del Potro inju injury in the semifinals of 18. And he's had so many problems on hard courts in Australian Open 2 that I think maybe in the back of his mind he was worried that if he played deep into the Open and got hurt, then not, not only would he lose the Open, but he would then lose his chance to go back to Roland Garros. You know, I, I, so I think there were all these things that were weighing on his mind. And in the end, I think he actually made a very intelligent, smart decision. Now he looks very fresh in Rome and he's probably going to be well prepared for Roland Garros and very hard to beat. And so I don't think he's going to question it. And I, I, do, I do believe the hard court syndrome and the injuries was, was certainly somewhere on his mind. With you, a hundred percent. I think safety, yes, but also do I really want to play three straight weeks on a hard court and then play, play Rome um, a week and later. Was, and, and when, and especially under the schedule we were talking about where there really wasn't no, any rest times. So if he did well in Cincinnati, he's going to be right back at it a couple of days later, like Novak had to do. And I, I, I Raph is a realist that way. And he probably figured, you know what, that, that could do me in because I haven't been playing. I've only, I, I've just been practicing. So I, how can I really be ready for that? So and being, I, I, being worn down for the French would be an unacceptable outcome right, for right. Rafa. Yeah, right. definitely, definitely. And I think he feels like, okay, it's a calculated, uh, I'm taking a calculated risk here, but I think it's the, it makes sense. And he goes into Roland Garros feeling, he'll go in feeling like he's got a pretty good shot at number 20. How do you think players will do with this transition? I think, I don't know, hard to clay. Is it, is it the same as clay to hard? Is it more difficult? Good question. Uh, I would say it's, it's maybe not, maybe it won't be, it, it may be on a par or slightly less difficult, I would say. And uh, I, I think that uh, most of them are going to do just fine. Like team, for instance, I think he'll get back in the groove in a hurry. Novak, based on his first match in, in uh, Rome, looked look, look pretty comfortable. And mm -hmm. uh, he, he seems like he, the practice did him good and he's back in, in comfortable in the clay court condition. So I think the the the, uh, the shift is probably pretty similar in that they'll all do very well with the transition. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. The only victim here is Pablo Carina Busta, who had to play Nadal, yeah. jet lag. I mean, come on. It was, I felt so bad for him. Well, um, unfortunately for him, as you know, I mean, unfortunately, he's the kind of guy that's tailor-made for Rafa 
even when he's fresh and ready. And it couldn't have been worse timing to have to do it now, coming off a semi at the Open. I felt bad for him too, but I think the result wouldn't have been any different if he had lost in the third round of the Open. Rafa still would have crushed him. This U.S. Open also represented this, a bit of a, a youth movement. And this is something that you and I have been discussing for a while. And normally at some point we, we mention uh, the, the younger crop of players. But um, when this draw came out, it was the highest number of seeds under 25 years of age since the 2011 Australian Open. And when you looked at the final eight, it was the youngest uh, quarterfinal um, in quite a long time. Again, I think it was since 2010. So I'm wondering who kind of stood out to you among this, this young group, besides, of course, Verev and, and team at, at 27 years of age, a bit older. Um, were there any kind of revelations, people who caught you, your eye this tournament? I mean, I, I, Denis Shapovalov, I, I, I felt badly about him, to tell you the truth. And he, apparently he said later that going into the fifth set, Karina Busta had been he pretty much tossed the fourth set after going down three love. And I think he may have had a false sense of security. I thought it was a match he should have won. Mm -hmm. And that had he won it, he would have played quite well, uh, you know, in the semi against Zarev. It would have been a very competitive match. But I'm still impressed with him because I think it's slow and steady growth. And it really won't be too long till we start seeing him in Grand Slam finals and eventually winning winning a few himself. So he he was one that stood out for me. Uh, I liked I Krorich's I love the Krorich match against Sispitas. It's a, the fight that he showed to come back from two sets to one down, five one on the four, saving six match points was pretty astounding. And obviously there were a lot of histrionics that went along with it. But I mm -hmm. I liked the way he played. I I didn't like the way he squandered the lead against Zarev because I felt like he got tight when he had a chance to be, it was up 4-3 in the second 40-15, trying to build a two-set lead, and that uh, he wasted an opportunity too. But uh, a lot of those guys impressed me. Who impressed you? Yeah, Shapovalov was, was really my name because I, I saw him prior to this tournament as probably a tier below the Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev class. And from, from his level as of late, um, I now kind of almost bump him up a level and, and he looked right on par with them. Uh, his, his movement looked better. He looked more patient and he's always had all the weapons, all the tools, but it just seems like he's starting to put it together and learn how to win matches. Yeah. Shot selection could still improve at times, but I agree. He is yeah. learning to put it together and he's a very exciting player to watch. And I think a pretty good guy and his, his countryman, Felix, you know, he took it on the chin after playing brilliantly against a very fatigued Andy Murray. Uh, and he took it on the chin from team, but I'm still optimistic about Felix long-term as well yeah. uh, because he's just such a gifted athlete, such a great all-around player. I think that Canada is going to have a lot to shout about in a few years with those two. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's end on, on the women. Um, Naomi Osaka, it seems like she's really here to stay. And, I mean, I could almost put it at that. And, by the way, I mean, of course – it's not just on the court, it's off the court. She's kind of become a, a leader and really a, a, a global leader um, and someone who, who you can be proud of to have at, at the top of the sport. But again, both on the court, off the court, it, it seems like she's not going anywhere. No, not at all. And she obviously stepped up in, you know, when she said she didn't want to play her semifinal, the Cincinnati event. That's when the tournament decided to take a whole day off. And uh, that really came about. She, that wasn't really her intention, but 
I think she was really glad she did it in the end, that that's how it turned out. And she is larger than the game in a, in a, in a sense in the way she's conducting herself. Now she's, she's really blossomed a lot in the last couple of years. I mean, you think of the difference in her as a personality from when she played Serena two years ago in, the, in that controversial final to today. She has she grown up immensely and impressively. And as for her tennis, four three setters, but every time, you know, every time the chips were down, she came through. And I thought as great as the final was, Gil, when she came from a set and two love down, lost eight of the first nine games, and Azarenka had that point for three love in the second, that as great as a performance as that was, I thought the semifinal was, was the magical moment of the mm-hmm. tournament. The way she played against Jennifer Brady, and you know, you know the women's game well, Gil. They are known more women's, – women's tennis is more about the return. They're, they're, they're incredible ground strokers, returners. But in, in a lot of the matches, you see quite a few service breaks, and you expect it. But here, is, here are Brady and Osaka protecting their serves brilliantly, backing them up with really ferocious ground strokes on both sides. No breaks in the first set. Osaka wins the tie break. One break in the second, one break in the third. Osaka takes the third. But it was such a high-class confrontation. And Naomi said after the final, I don't know if you heard her in that one interview on ESPN, she said I, it was one of the top three matches of her career. That she cited that Brady match. And I think we're going to see some – I expect to see some big Osaka-Brady finals in the, in the years to come because Brady has made a gigantic leap uh, in recent months and she didn't lose, come close to losing a set all the way up till Naomi. Yeah, she was, she was outstanding. I agree with you there. And, uh, of course, Serena loses another chance. Um, you know, she, well, again, I, I think she got, you're right. She lost a chance, a great yeah. performance from the, the way that as, as Arenka struck back so boldly and found her range on the returns and just totally outplayed Serena the last two sets. But, there's this, there's this, I hate to go back to the word syndrome again, but the Serena syndrome is one three-setter after another. All but two matches since the comeback have gone three sets. That, to me, is a concerning sign. It has to be in her camp because she even talked about it during the Cincinnati part of the tournament that she needed to win some matches more quickly. That's a lot of time on court for her now as she's turning 30, 39. And, and I think... Uh, it's remarkable that she's back in the semis and one set away from the final. But I think the problem for her now, Gil, is that, yes, she can still beat anyone in the world, but there's a wider cast of players that can now beat her. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, so that's, it's going to make that 24th major might be elusive for that reason. Do you think it's a focus problem? Uh, sometimes it seems like she just goes in and out over the course of a match recently. Could be. Could be. She's the only one that really knows that. I, 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 yeah. I feel like it's that she has trouble sustaining it don't know if it's total focus because sometimes she's losing the first set and coming back sometimes she's dropping the second it varies match to match obviously the Serena of say 2015 is not I don't care how well Azarenka was playing if if Serena wins the first set 6-1 I I think the match is dope that's Mm -hmm. my feeling and so I do think it's harder for her to close now but whether that's wandering mind or just not having not having the Skills to do, not the skills, not having the within her, not coming through when it counts, you know, securing a breakpoint opportunity and putting it out of reach. They're staying with her, shot for shot, toe to toe. They're with her from the baseline now, a lot of these players. So Serena, it's so incumbent upon her to serve her way out of these, out of these crises. And sometimes she's not been able to do it. And the Azarenka match is a perfect example. The returner 
the great returner beat the great server. Right. Well, Steve, this is, this has been great. And you know, it's the U S the post U S open, but it's strangers. There's another one. It's another one before the year ends. So that, that's good. Right. Uh, particularly strange that it would be Roland Garros. Right. I mean, <laughs> so we're lucky about that. And let's hope Gil that everything goes as smoothly as it did at the open. My concern about Roland Garros is that the U S open took every conceivable precaution. They had their bubble. They were really careful in the right ways. Maybe some players didn't like it so much, but I think it had to be done. Mm -hmm. I don't know about whether Roland Garros is going to be as strict. It's not that clear to me now. Uh, they're going to allow some press. They're going to allow, I think the latest was 5,000 spectators. But I, I worry about the fact that I think they should have done it more like the U.S. Open in Rome. And I would, if I were them, I would have said no spectators at all. That's my yeah. feeling. Right. I, I see. I don't see that much of a, a bet. I mean, it might be about um, the bottom line, but at the end of the day, if there's going to be an outbreak among the players, you, you're in major trouble as a tournament. So. Um, yeah, I, it's true. It's true. But I think that, you know, the, the idea is you do these things short term to keep, keep things afloat. And then you, you hope we get back to normal next year. I just hope right. Roland Cross doesn't live to regret. I'm, I'm rooting for them to have a great, Fortnite, and I hope they do. And yes. I, I just, I just don't want to see players getting sick and and serious problems erupting as a as a result of perhaps not being as strict as they need to be. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, Steve, pleasure as always. This was so much fun. Um, I, it's always, again, I, I always look forward to this. As soon as a major ends, I think, you know, okay, time to email Steve. And I, these chats are just so enjoyable. Gil, it was great fun. It went, and I think we covered a lot of ground on this one. We did. We're, we're flying through it, but also <laughs> going in depth and uh, covering all the bases. Yeah. All right. Well, talk to you soon. Always fun to exchange these views with the Gil. And we'll, let's, let's do it again after Roland Garros. Absolutely. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.